Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that seeks simplicity amongst the complexities when talking about cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at news stories, including a device that lets you monitor your car, even if it's not new, by smartphone. We road test the Audi Q7, a large SUV with a model that has reduced its horsepower. Is it a compromise too far? We also road test the Subaru Liberty, a medium-sized sedan in a very competitive field. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including France offers Tesla an old nuclear power station as a potential site for a manufacturing plant. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interviews and road tests by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program and an extended version of the quirky news. Look up Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. New cars are providing a lot of technology, but now cars made as far back as 1996 can have a $100 plug-and-play device fitted that provides many modern features. The system, made by Voyo, can provide a dashboard on your smartphone from which you can track and connect with multiple vehicles, whether your family or corporate fleet. It provides a driving log with routes travelled, fuel used, and alert notifications, informing you of any vehicle malfunctions or undesired driver behaviours, including driving in excess of an owner set speed limit. The system also includes an auto key which recognises your cell phone and unlocks the door or trunk as you approach. Australians are prepared to tolerate a daily commute to work of about 37 minutes each way, according to a survey conducted by the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies. A spokesman said there has been a great deal of talk about the 20-minute city with every suburb within a short commute. However, this survey suggests that the idea of a 40-minute commute is acceptable. The survey also found that commuter tolerance is relatively constant across the country with Western Australians, the most intolerant, at an average of 34 minutes, and New South Wales commuters, the most tolerant, with an average acceptance of a 40-minute commute. Ford has successfully tested a driverless car in the dark using laser mapping technology instead of cameras to help it find the way. Ford's driverless car used LiDAR 3D mapping technology which sends out 2.8 million laser pulses a second to create a 3D map of the environment. Ford then fused this with additional data from radar to complete the full sensing capability of the autonomous vehicle. Other models have needed light to help cameras pick up road markings to help them orientate. Ford also announced it will triple its autonomous vehicle test fleet, bringing the number to 30 self-driving fusion hybrid sedans for testing on roads in the United States. The way in which pedestrian collisions are reported in the media negatively affects public perception, says a pedestrian safety advocate. Conrad Nobit, co-founder of Paths for People, said that police usually only reported fatalities and so the public remain oblivious to the high number of injuries that have a huge impact on the people involved. 
the fact that total pedestrian collision data is only available in aggregate form after a year also means the impact, excuse the pun, is lost, says Norbert. Overdrive has always been concerned that the police only report very extreme cases of people speeding, when, for example, every one of us could be guilty of driving at 70 km per hour in a 40 km per hour zone, which can be extremely dangerous. The Greens Party candidate for London Mayor has helped launch what is said to be UK's first transparent solar bus shelter. The new shelter has embedded solar technology into the walls and roof. The company which has developed the technology says that using their solo photovoltaic glazing across London's transport sector in things like bus shelters could have a significant impact on the city's emissions without compromising its environment, architecture or budgets. This one shelter is capable of generating 2,000 kilowatt hours per year which is enough electricity to power the average London home. And still in Britain, the UK Department for Transport has released a consultation on plans which could see councils and utility companies fined for not clearing roadworks before the weekend or for leaving traffic lights in place when the work is done. The local government association has already criticised the plans and called for other options to be considered, including the expansion of London's lane rental scheme, where contractors pay for the time they occupy busy roads and are therefore incentivised to get the job done properly and on time. There is an existing penalty of £5,000 per day for delayed roadworks, however these overrun charges do not apply to councils. Overdrive has reported on measures in New Zealand to try and improve foreign drivers when they rent a car for their holidays. But a Ministry of Transport report on overseas driver crashes from 2010 to 2014 showed that where vehicle ownership was recorded, 44% of visitors drove privately owned vehicles compared with just over half who opted for rentals. That meant they missed out on the driver information on privately owned vehicles and safety initiatives such as the keep left steering wheel tags attached to rental cars. The New Zealand Transport Agency plans to target the private car category of overseas license holders as part of its $15 million visitor driving education project, which includes a $1 million social media campaign. And that has been the news. There has been what some might call a mad rush to increase the power in cars, but Audi has launched a Q7 model with 40 less kilowatts. The Q7 is a large SUV with a lot of features and a cool ride. Now, according to Audi, their website, the new model costs $106,300 or so. That's on the road. Uh, including all dealer charges and so on, uh, depending, of course, a little on which state you're in. And uh, while the original 200 kilowatt version costs another six grand more, is the lower horsepower car a compromise too far? Has it lost anything with its reduction in power? Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au has been driving the so-called lower-powered car and he has, and I have driven it as well. Let's see what we think. Uh, Paul, is it a compromise too far? David, I certainly don't think it is a compromise too far. The um, Audi Q7 is a, it's a big SUV. It's a two-ton SUV. 
Um, and even in the, the so-called lower-powered version with 160 kilowatts of power and 500 newton minutes of torque, it's hardly short-changed. And I think unless you put them back-to-back -back and drove them back-to-back, -back, you'd be very hard-pressed to feel the difference in everyday use. You're talking about a diesel engine here. Possibly the, the kilowatts is not the, such a big issue, but the uh, newton metres might be. But being a diesel, there are heaps of it anyway, down from 600 to 500. 500 is still a lot. It is, and it comes on It comes on from like 1,200 revs. I'm just, you know, from... from it wasn't that long ago that 1,200 revs was almost idling speed. Well, from, from 1,250 revs, you've got 500 newton metres of power at your, at your command to sort of pull the car through. And that's reflected also, I think, in its, you know, it's, it's still quoted to tow, to tow, you know, 3,500 kilograms brake towing capacity. So it, it's a big machine that does everything that you want from a big SUV even though it's been slightly, like what, detuned, I guess, is the way you'd have to put it? Well, it is the same engine, isn't yes, it? it is. It's just a, a three-litre, six-cylinder diesel engine. Mm. I think one of its advantages with aluminium bonnet doors and front guards is it's not over-heavy for the class. In fact, I think it's perhaps one of the uh, lighter-weighted vehicles in that class. In the big SUV class, yes, it is. Um, I remember when, when, the S, when the Q7 was launched quite some years ago now, it felt very large. It really felt bigger than its com competition. Um, this one's surprisingly, you know, not only has it been depowered, it's also been desized. Um, they've brought it down in size. They've, they've reduced the weight. Uh, the, the outer dimensions are smaller. So all in all, it's a very, very competent vehicle. I think the Q7 and, and the Q9, I thought, did look a bit, well, just lumpily big, if you know what I mean. It just... Uh, looked like someone who was big and tall but just a little bit awkward for that size. It didn't look bad, but I think this new one does look a bit better and they've used the interior space much better. Yes, indeed. I think my, my editor at Practical Motoring actually says it drives well and no longer looks like a pregnant skateboard. Um, not my comment, Mr Audi, I didn't, I didn't say that, but it certainly does look <laughs> a lot more attractive. Our colleague Tim O'Brien says the 160 kilowatt model might not be quite a rocket ship, but it has winged heels on the road, corners like it isn't an SUV, and is an effortless long-distance tourer. I thought that was a, a nice, eloquent way to sum it up. And I tell you what, it gets pretty good fuel consumption. It's amazing. And hardly much difference between the, the two powered vehicles. No, it's, um, what, 5.8 litres per 100 k's, which, uh, considering, again, you're driving a two-ton SUV, yeah. And a, an SUV that gets up and moves. I mean, I, I tend to agree with Tim. It's, it's not a rocket ship. But in the real world, we just don't need things like, an, a, a, you know, pull me back here. But things like Jeep Grand Cherokee SRTs are fantastic fun, but they're not the most practical or sensible things in the real world. The Audi Q7 just makes remarkably good sense. There are very few times, unless you can see an oncoming B-double, that you really need to get sports car acceleration to save your life. Yes. I think, as a, again, I keep saying, I think the Audi Q7, in its detuned form, and you're saving $6,000 over the more powerful version, uh, presents a very good case for itself. Eight-speed gearbox? Yes, well, they're becoming pretty much standard these days. Audi's always had a good gearbox in that sense, uh, and the eight-speed gearbox is pretty well seamless. Under normal circumstances, you're hard-pressed to, to tell it's changing gears, and you're almost impossible when it comes to trying to work out which gear it's in. Paul, as always, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au. We were talking about the Audi Q7 large SUV. 
And you can hear a longer chat with Paul about the Audi A7 by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk about its handling, which was beautiful, and the many features that you can get with the car. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. The medium-sized car segment in Australia is not doing well. The non-luxury part of that market is down 10% so far this year. The top three sellers, the Camry, the Mazda 6 and the Subaru Liberty, are all down significantly this year, although the Liberty had a boom last year. Now, fourth place, Ford Mondeo is rushing up the charts. Finally, Ford seems to be selling some of their better cars in more realistic or more acceptable numbers. Now we've just been driving the Subaru Liberty. It's had a refresh with some changes mainly around safety and handling. A year ago the prices went down significantly. For 2016 there's a slight increase in some versions but still good value. You can buy one for on the road costs about 34 and a half bit more depending on which state you're in and that's the full value to get it on the road. That's the base model 2.5i. It goes right up to, again, on-road costs of about 47600 uh, Is that good enough? Respected motoring journalist Ian Crawford joins me on the line. We've both been driving some of the versions, and let's find out what he thinks. Let me say, Ian, overall, it got a good look change about a year ago. It still looks good, and I think that's a much better part of the Subaru package now than it has been in the past. Yeah, it is It is a handsome car. There's no doubt about that. And uh, Subaru, as well as the exterior, Subaru's done a lot of work on the interior of its cars in recent years. And uh, uh, the top spec 3.6R that, that I've spent some time in, the, the interior is right up there with the best from Europe. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, a mate of mine owned some for a while and then looked at it a few years ago now and said that he felt it hadn't progressed a bit, but now he's just driven the, the later ones. It, it certainly has done better. I got out of a Lexus into the Liberty, and I tell you what, I wasn't disappointed. It felt still felt very good. Overall package, it feels strong. Oh, yes, it does. And of course, um, it's got all-wheel drive, which its competitors haven't got. So its safety credentials are impeccable. It's got five-star ANCAP and it's got all sorts of fancy um, safety gear, um, as well as the added safety of of the all-wheel drive. And for this new upgraded model, which is only about a year after they they did the last generation, or the new generation, which has now been upgraded, there's a whole lot of new uh, fancy uh, safety stuff um, and while the price has gone up on the on the top spec and the mid spec one's gone up five hundred dollars, um, it's been more than covered by the the added fruit, um, you know, and this this really sexy um, safety stuff that's been put in it. Because they dropped the price last year when they brought in this new model, this new uh, overall new shape and things, they dropped it significantly, didn't they? Yeah, it was dramatic. It was like thirteen odd thousand dollars from memory. And it certainly had an effect on the sales because um, during 2015, Liberty sales went up a remarkable 300%, uh, which made it the third best seller in the medium car segment. And I think that's the position it still holds. 
Yeah, it's holding that now. It's dropped a little bit so far this year, but that's dropped off a very high base compared to where it has been a couple of years ago. You talked about the safety, some of the uh, features there. It's got what Subaru calls its eyesight, which is a, a fairly good safety package. Do you know what some of the things in that are? Uh, it's got adaptive cruise control and autonomous braking and steering assistance that helps you avoid collisions. It's got uh, lane departure warning and other things and as well as that there's the uh, vision assist package that's standard on the 3.6 R that I drove and that gives you blind spot monitoring, lane change assist, uh, an automatic dimming rear vision mirror, high beam assist, rear cross traffic alert which is really handy when you're backing out of you know spots in supermarkets. Um, the other thing about the, about the safety is uh, and the ride and handling of the Liberty is that um, uh, Subaru Australia uh, put a lot of work into giving the Liberty a more compliant ride. They did a lot of testing in Australia and they've come up with uh, revised uh, dampers and spring settings uh, that's improved the roll and pitch and dive and float control. It's flatter through corners. And they've also done a lot of work on the NVH, so that it's a very refined car to drive. Ian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure, David. Thank you. And that's Ian Crawford, a respected motoring journalist, who's giving us his opinion as on the car we've both driven, which is the Subaru Liberty. He had the top-of-the-range 3.6-litre R. I had the mid-range 2.5-litre I. And you can hear a longer interview with Ian by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk about the power of the Subaru, the gearbox, which is pretty good, and the fuel consumption, which is perhaps not class-leading. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And we come to the final segment of the program where we talk some quirky news. And again, I have on the line Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And we have talked a couple of times in uh, the recent past about Brian's idea of the need to have a transit system as more than just a place to get on and off a bus or a train or a tram, but rather as a wide-ranging activity centre. Now, the New York World Train Centre sent a transportation hub is just about finished, not quite, 4.4 billion US dollars, 5.8 billion Australian dollars. They are about to get it finished and it's going to have, have all the bells and whistles. Brian, is this the sort of thing that you were talking about? Indeed, David. Um, yes, in most cities, uh, transport hubs are becoming uh, retail hubs and substantial proportions of people who are visiting them aren't there to travel. And so, uh, you know, in a, in a prominent, um, massive place like New York, uh, they take the opportunity to really rationalise all of the bits of the transport network or components of the of the hub into a, a big space that's a high quality that, that can fit a lot of retail in. And yeah, look, it's been criticised for its cost. I think the client um, 
uh, what do they call themselves? Part of me. Transit Authority. Yeah, or the, something? Tran- the Port Authority um, have, have been criticising the cost of it. But uh, look, these things are really the economic um, fireplaces of activity. Uh, uh, for cities. Obviously has a great sentimental value because of 9-11, but it has been criticised because the whole activity of it, and by the way, I think the shopping centre is going to be run by Australia's own Westfield, which is a, a little bit of a home reality to us. But the trouble is this architectural sculpture that they put on it is huge and expensive. Is there a balance where we've got to say, well, we've got to make it look good but we really don't have to spend literally a billion dollars on trying to make it look architecturally outstanding. Yeah, look, I think this is a special case because of September 11, and I think that that concept of the dove, this huge sculpture, uh, you know, architectural sculptural forms, is really about, particularly with underground spaces, you need to market. You need to say here is, you know, here's a prominent location, and you can be able to see this from a very long way away. So. I think this is a case where big and bold is very important, but it is, it's not throwing away money, it's, it's investing in the public realm, it's very important. There seems to be three elements here now, the transport element, the commercial element, and its architectural presence becomes a critical part of this, which is much more than just putting a few seats there for bus passengers to sit on. That's absolutely right. And, of course, all this is about footfall. These transport hubs generate lots and lots of people moving, and you can sell to them. It's really a place where people come together, and it's a natural a natural place for, for business to take place. And so it's a development beyond the car-based malls. It's really about saying that uh, you know the future is going back to mass transit, and this is where you'll be able to make your money rather than building gigantic suburban malls full of car parking. Mm, that, that people have to actively go to. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know how this is going to work in... Um, they, they talk about you know, Sydney Airport doing the same thing. And I don't quite see how that's the same because nobody goes to Sydney Airport unless they have to. No, that's right, Errol. I think you're right. Airports are different. Airports are shopping malls where you travel. They certainly, they operate them that way now. It's all about, uh, they make their money from car parking and they make their money from retail. But you're right, people don't travel to an airport, you know, just to go there because the costs are so high. But transit centres, they're in the heart of a city and and really that's what makes them work. Sydney Airport houses about 200 stores, I believe, at the moment. And there's an upgrade under its 20-year master plan. So they certainly see it as important. But as you say, Brian, it's really just the travelling public here uh, and the more serious travelling public of the flying rather than necessarily what might be a short trip to a transit centre along the way. Now, Errol, you have a story for us. Well, uh, David, if, if you've never been quite sure what to do with that old nuclear reactor that you've got lying around, France has come up with a unique solution. Offer it to an American billionaire who's looking for somewhere local to make electric cars. In this case, it's Tesla's Elon Musk. France's energy minister has suggested the site of a decommissioned nuke plant at Fessenheim near the German border could be where EU-made Model 3s come off the production line. The uh, only small bit of fine print for Tesla, they'll have to remove the old nuclear power station first. (laughs) 
cheaper to half the price. Well, look, they can they make a saving here. They won't need headlights for their cars. The whole car will glow. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they could even nuclear power the car. I believe subs, the nuclear powered submarines, go for twenty years or more mm. without refueling. Yeah, oh, all, all, of, all, all of the European Tesla cars will will come out of the factory fully charged. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, in fact, they could be a power source for the cars around them. Yeah, I, I, I always thought it was an interesting irony that a place that made electricity will be used to make things that use electricity. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a, <laughs> it's a, a perfect alignment of interest. Uh, according to my Look and Learn magazines from the 1970s, we're all going to have uh, small atomic reactors in our cars by now, I think. Yeah, I, I, is it a Mr. Fusion on the back? <laughs> That's right, Homer Simpson. Uh, well, you'll have to... You'll have to change things, like your guarantee now will be recorded in terms of half-life <laughs> or decay, won't it? Service intervals. <laughs> uh, you'll no longer consider kilowatts, but what sort of uh, fraction of a Hiroshima bomb your car has, has to do with it. Instead of Olympic swimming pools. How many kilotons did you, did you pour <laughs> into your tank this morning? Well, I said, yeah, so mine will, you know, do, uh, do the Kessel run in less than three parsecs or whatever. <laughs> You'll have to change the logo on the front of the grid, maybe to an atom, a bit like NASA, although, of course, the NASA atom is now uh, out of date, isn't it? It's not really, an atom isn't really like a little planet with protons uh, circulating yeah. around it. They're waiting for the Higgs boson to be found so they can uh, work out a logo from that. Could you change the names of cars? You could have the Einstein or the Oppenheimer. Hmm. Oh. Well, we've already got Proton. Yes. I tell you one you could have, the Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan Project, the Fallout. The SUV could be called the Fat Man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which is not the name of the bomb that they dropped on Nagasaki, I think, yeah. Uh, Tall boy and short boy or something. Mm. Won't go. Won't go. Won't sell very well in the Japanese market. Probably not. No. But the cars should have numbers on them too. So you could have the uranium two three five. And of course, if they're electric cars and they don't have an engine node, instead you could have like a, a Geiger counter tone. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> you hear a car going past clicking like a Geiger counter. Awesome. Uh, scrapping the car would become a big issue, and, and you might have to uh, change traffic reports. You know, if you report that Tesla had a meltdown on the M2, <laughs> that might be a degree of difficulty. And you'd have to get rid of our cars in the, uh, in the middle of the outback. Yes, of course. Yes, you'd have to dump them there, wouldn't you? Gentlemen, as always, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. And that's Brian Smith and Errol Smith, and we were talking some quirky news. And you can hear a longer version of the quirky news, including a story about a sat-nav system that scared a young boy for all the wrong reasons, and a man who was lucky to survive one accident only to fall into the trap of another. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au to listen or to podcast. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Paul Morell, Ian Crawford and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au 
or podcast the whole program or an extended quirky news segment by looking for Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.